Welcome to How the World Works. I am Kevin Williamson here with a guest named Sally Sattel. Dr. Sattel is a psychiatrist and a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a writer of books and articles about kidneys, among other things, which I think <laughs> yes. we'll get to in a second. But um, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you is a question I ask doctors a lot, which is, why does anyone become a doctor? Um you hear me, hear me out here for a second. It, it used to be this very, you know, high status occupation is the, the joke about, you know, every mom wants her, her son to grow up to be a doctor. But if you're smart enough to be a doctor in the United States, you're smart enough to work on Wall Street. And, you know, by the time you go through all the stuff you have to go through to be a doctor and a residency and medical school and all that, you're in your 30s before you really start to make any money. Um, there are lots of other occupations you can go into that would certainly be more lucrative than most uh, most medical practices are. Um, why do people why do people become doctors? <laughs> because life isn't about money, Kevin. <laughs> Some of it's um, about money. Well, you actually can make you can do very well if you do um, procedures, mm. which every time I say that it reminds me of the graduate when the friend took um, Dustin Hoffman aside and said plastics, plastics yeah. yes, procedures. Now psychiatrists, unless they do a lot of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and we really don't do a lot of that. In fact, it's really in specialized medical centers, don't make a lot of money compared to other doctors. Although, if you work like in a big city like DC or New York, you can, people, my friends charge up to $600 an hour. Mm. That's not bad. Um, I work in a methadone clinic, so let's just say I'm not making that. that, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, almost all the doctors I know are academic physicians. And so, their primary interest was really research. And the ones who do a significant amount of clinical work in their research institutions, you know, just really love saving lives, love working with 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 patients. Yeah. So it's a lot of it really is a humanitarian uh impulse that many of them have. I like to think most. Hmm. I had a doctor in New York and I he had a picture on as well of this great collection of exotic sports cars he had. And I said, I think I probably pay you too much. And he mm-hmm. said, do you want a doctor who can't afford a Ferrari? Which I thought was a fair question. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get on the path to becoming a psychiatrist? Is that something you wanted to do from childhood or did it something you kind of fell into? Or no. Did you lose a bet? <laughs> it's a strange story that actually for the longest time, I, I, I just kind of felt um, almost a taboo against saying, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. And I did write a short article about it um when <laughs> believe it or not when um president trump was on steroids because of his covid mm. and there was a concern that it was affecting his mental status one might ask how one could know but in any <laughs> case um but those drugs uh, prednisone that's a typical one they really can have what's what's called effects on one's mental status. That would be the mental status changes kind of a formal term for it. And um, and I happened to have experiences with them myself. Uh, when I finished college, I wanted to be a um, I wanted to be a biologist. I had a very romantic notion about field biology and descriptive biology and Darwin. Um, then I went to a, uh, I went to Cornell, which is in the country effectively. So did a lot of field work there. And then I went to the University of Chicago for graduate school to do evolutionary biology. And then my first year there, I developed a, um, a serious inflammation and the, 
you know, one of the standard therapies still today is steroids. They're mm -hmm. very good at controlling inflammation, especially acute inflammation. And um, unfortunately, um, my doctor neglected to tell me it could have side effects. And um, it was a pretty high dose. And so within two weeks, I was effectively mad. I mean, I um, was profoundly depressed. Uh, I mean, at, at a qualitative level that I've really never had before. The kind where you'd kill yourself if you had the energy. And um, uh, sleeping most of the day, crying the rest of it, sort of wandering like a zombie around Hyde Park. And um, and then I could You're not- You're about 25 at this point? 20, 21. 21, yeah. okay. And then um, I developed a kind of- an aphasia, which is a word you typically hear in the context of stroke victims, mm -hmm. and it comes in two forms. Receptive aphasia means I really couldn't understand what you were saying to me, and expressive aphasia, which is less common, means um, – oh, pardon me. I think I reversed them. I think expressive aphasia is somewhat um, more common, where you, can't, you don't make that much sense when you talk. But I developed – uh, receptive aphasia. I didn't have any head trauma. This is all, this is really fascinating what pharma, you know, uh, uh, some molecules can do to your whole cognitive capacity. Mm -hmm. And um, I couldn't understand what people were saying to me. Just didn't make, it, it, you know, it just didn't make sense. And of course, reading didn't make sense. So um, the people in my graduate department were so nice. They let me take the semester, you know, off. And then when the my doctor tapered the steroids and the inflammation was resolving. Then everything went back to normal, but it was a long, you know, a good three months because as you know, once you've been on these medications and I don't know why my doctor never <laughs> warned me that I could have some side effects. Typically people feel elated. That's, that's kind of a more, a more manic kind of effect. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, when I tearfully told him, you know, or didn't tell him, I said, what the hell is going on? And he said, oh, it's the effects of the medication. And and anyway, it's time to taper, but it has to be a fairly slow taper. Otherwise, your adrenal glands will shut down um, because they've effectively been suppressed by the steroids you've been taking all this time. And uh, so that took a while. So so for about two months, I, I was having the symptoms I just mentioned to varying degrees of intensity, you know, but when it was all over, I thought, um, you know, there are people who go through this and it's not because they took a medication. It's because their own innate neurotransmitters are effectively turned on them and they may become, you know, that's, that was an age around early twenties, late teens is when schizophrenia first manifests, bipolar, maybe a little later, but the psychotic illnesses, which are just, devastating. And I just felt, you know, this, this is happening to people. And um, it's frankly tragic. Uh, not my case. Um, I was very lucky and it was over. I mean, but I thought, my gosh, you know, to have this problem. And then even if it does resolve, you never know. Sometimes it can, the symptoms can reemerge. The medications, first off, maybe you can't find a medication that works well, or you're on one, but it loses its effectiveness. Anyway, to make a long story short, I dropped out of graduate school. Um, I did finish. Mm -hmm. I did get a master's, which at the University of Chicago is a consolation prize. And um, and then I went to medical school. And I so I went to medical school knowing I wanted to be a psychiatrist, which is a, a little unusual. I think people often go to medical school trying to decide what kind of doctor they want to be. Um, so that's that's up to date now. Yeah, part of my uh, 
misspent youth was spent studying um, linguistics. So I know ah. a little something about aphasias. And um, it's a bad combination with depression because one of the common uh, outcomes of aphasia is suicide mm. uh, because people get so estranged by um, not being able to uh, communicate. And um, it's, a, it's a real, you know, a real sort of consistent issue uh, for people who, who suffer from those in, in particularly disruptive ways. Yeah. So there's medical school, there's residency. Um, so you're in D.C. where people are very status conscious. So here you don't very often have to explain to people which one's the doctor and which one's uh, not a doctor when you're talking about psychiatrists and psychologists and stuff. But um, tell us a little bit about the steps of going, you know, through that, what you actually have to do to become a, a physician. Usually you're, you're pre-med, although I wasn't a pre-med. I just happened to be a biology major. Uh, so most of the requirements were already, I'd met them. But there's usually a pre, pre-medical um series with, you know, organic chemistry and physiology and can't remember, but um, the obvious. Uh, and then you go to medical school. That's four years. And the first two years, I mean, I did go a while ago, but I think the, I think it, the organization uh, is largely the same of um, the first two years being what's called preclinical, where you largely take big classes, of, you do gross anatomy lab and, um, you know, pharmacology and pathophysiology and uh Histology, anyway, that's, I don't know if they do histology anymore. Um, I'm sure they don't use slides the way we did, the good old stained slides, Mm. but I feel like I mentioned here. And, um, and then, uh, and then there's some introduction to how to do a physical exam, how to interact with the patients. I hope some basic medical ethics. And then the last two years are clinical where you go from, you know, you're the, you're the medical student on the surgery uh, rotation and then the uh, medical rotation, the OBGYN, and, um, and then um, you go off to residency and that's no longer general. You decide what kind of a residency you're going to take. And um, again, that was obvious to me, it would be psychiatry. And they, they differ in the amount of years. Psychiatry was four years, three years. So there's one year of internship everyone's an intern. And then, so there's medical school internship and then a residency, which in psychiatry is three years. Um, uh, it's really, it has been a while, but I, I think some are four and even five years. And then a lot of people do fellowships. Mm-hmm. So if you were uh, a surgeon, you might do a fellowship in plastic surgery or transplant surgery or that kind of thing. And then you, um, you can go out on your own and put out a shingle, although that's happening less and less. So you can go out sort of on your own and work for Kaiser, you know, or a group. And that's much more common than, than solo practitioners. Or you can, you know, work at, be an academic, hmm. work in a university. So when you were, when you were done with your formal education and ready to make that decision about what to do, how, how old were you at that point? Well, um, let's see. Well, when I, I did residency, I guess. You're in graduate school at 21. You're moving through college pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I guess I was in my late twenties when I finished. Um, when I finished my um, medical school, twenty four. My gosh, I didn't write this out. I don't mm. know my timeline off the top of my head, but mid twenties, and then um, and then I did a uh, residency from eighty four. Yeah, from eighty four to eighty eight at the West Haven. PA. <laughs> and that actually was very formative, though, in, in shaping what I, my career, in a, in a sense, because working it. at the VA hospital was um, really enlightening. Uh, it was uh, Vietnam-era vets and, and Vietnam vets. And um, 
you may know that PTSD, which is a phenomenon that the Greeks documented, I mean, ever since there was war, there's been, or, or any kind of traumatic experience, there's always been PTSD, which it technically really is a fear reaction that doesn't extinguish once the threatening stimulus goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the core of PTSD. It's considered an anxiety disorder. And, um, but it didn't enter the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you know, the standard APA, American Psychiatric Association Compendium of Diagnoses. It didn't enter it till 1980, and that was in the DSM-3. And there were other diagnoses that probably could have fit, but it really became codified. And this was largely through the work of um, uh, Robert J. Lifton had a lot to do with that, actually, and um, and also a psychiatrist named named Dr. Um, Robert Spitzer, and um, and so uh, that diagnosis basically came into existence in 1980, and I started at the VA in 1984. So, I um, mean, right now, everyone, you know, on the street knows what PTSD is practically. Uh, but then- And they all think they have it. Uh, well, we do We do tend to medicalize, over-medicalize yeah. in this society. No question about that. So, so basically, it, you know, it was fascinating. The VA, of course, had um, p- patients who had schizophrenia and all the other depression, anxiety, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, everything else. So, you know, we took care of those folks. But there was enormous emphasis and funding going towards the treatment of PTSD. And... Um, and unfortunately, I, I, I don't doubt that everyone thought they were doing, they all had great intentions, but they sort of approached it in, in ways that now um, we see were so counterproductive. Um, one thing we did was put a lot of these guys inpatient. Now, if you're, if you're that sick that you need to be hospitalized, that's, that's fine and you should be an inpatient, but most care can be delivered as an outpatient. And the reason that's important, it's not a matter of money, although inpatient is always more expensive, is because you want people to be with their family, be in their community, not be estranged from them in any way. And a lot of the therapy that you will be doing involves the family because when a um, someone has um, PTSD or, or let's just say um, post-traumatic symptoms or post-war symptoms, I would say, um, you know, men, uh, th- I'll say men because it was almost all men at the time, can be drinking too much. There's domestic violence. They're often not working. There's an enormous amount of tension in the home and chaos. So you always want to involve the family as well. But we took these guys into the hospital, and and a lot of them almost recreated a platoon. It was almost a regressive kind of a therapy. There was a lot of um, cathartic work. And, you know, when someone is uh, fragile, it's not such a good idea for them to reenact what they did or think they did or want you to think they did get involved with. So, um, and on top of that, those dynamics, um, we we, I'm talking about the VA, uh, makes service-connected disability money available to veterans. Again, not in any way against that. These men have sacrificed their life, and if they haven't sacrificed their life per se, in fact, only 15% of Vietnam veterans are actually in the infantry. But still, they've made significant sacrifices, and some of them have had jobs. You know, you can be a truck driver, and so you're not in combat, but, you know, there are IEDs. I mean, you, your truck could blow up. So there's a, ample reason for a, a lot of stress. Um, 
but we would help these guys get service-connected money. And I would say that if somebody has been through through therapy, has, has tried hard to um, become more functional, and their symptoms are just overpowering, then of course we should make their lives not even easy, but possible with financial benefits. But we were had way too low a threshold for um, making these benefits available. We made them available to people who were rehabilitatable, and then we turned them into psychiatric invalids. Because if you get money and you're in a fragile state psychologically, and someone and the message is basically, well, you're you're just dis- you are disabled. You're not going to be a productive member of society. Um, then then that's something you will start to incorporate into your sense of yourself and your abilities. And then the longer you don't work, kind of the longer you don't work, your skills atrophy and your confidence uh, erodes. And and then you're afraid to even try to go back in the workforce because then if it doesn't work, you'll have lost the money that supported you. Um, so I have a complete sympathy for veterans who, once they got on this, were too afraid to, to come off it because it risked too much. Um, but the VA, to my best understanding, still has um, still has this a, po- a policy where a veteran can approach the disability house, so to speak, this, that side of the veterans um, administration, the veterans benefit administration, I think it is, and then there's the veterans health administration. You can go to the benefits administration without ever going through health with that door first. Hmm. So. And they don't require you. They will, they will assess you for service-connected funds, which are very generous if you get, and should be, if you get total and permanent and it's tax-free. Um, but you can go through the door of, of benefits, and they can declare you um, disabled. And I'm, I'm sure they recommend, you know, you, you really should get some help for this. But that's not a requirement. And to me, that's like, you know, being in a car accident and... Uh, you're, you, you know, you're in the hospital, and three days later, they bring over your permanent wheelchair and your permanent monthly check, and you're saying, "Wait, wait! I haven't had surgery. I haven't had uh, physical therapy. Don't write me off yet." And I don't, I don't believe the VA for a minute saw themselves as doing that. But really, effectively, that that that's what happened to a lot of these. Um, man. And it was very frustrating. And then there was another um, frustrating uh, development. I was working on the, um, I was directing the substance abuse treatment um, unit, is that when the checks came due, the, 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 the guys who had a drug problem would spend it on drugs. So we were effectively subsidizing their addictions. Yeah. And um, so some colleagues and I you know, come up with this idea where, well, you know, uh, maybe they could sign over their checks is asking a lot, but, um, and we could man- help them manage the money. So they didn't have any discretionary funds and they could earn that back with like, you know, giving us clean urine toxes or, you know, being contributing in some way, being productive, you know, applying for a job, working at a job, even working in a sheltered workshop, which the VA had. And, um, and actually there's one VA in California, at least one VA that that's actually doing that. Um, but we always wanted it to be almost like part of the policy and kind of ironically that was part of the policy 
at over at the Social Security Administration because right around the time I was we we're all getting so frustrated with our patients spending money on drugs um, is um, I became aware of a program through Social Security called DANA, Drug Abuse and Alcoholism, and it was developed in 1972. And again, you know, good intentions. The idea is that if you were disabled because you were, doesn't quite say it this way, but this is clearly what it was. If you were disabled because you were too intoxicated to work, we will send you a check. But to be fair, well, first off, the check wasn't a, wasn't a lot of money, but we'd send you the check. And however, the check would go to what's called a designated um, payee. So it would go to your, your mom or your brother or someone who, um, responsible person, and they would make sure that your utilities were, everything was taken care of. And, um, you know, and they would basically watch this money and if probably one would hope kind of give it back to the patient in a sense, in the way that we thought about doing that at the VA, kind of as an incentive to, um, to get better. And, um, but, uh, so some of our patients would get that funding as, as well as, um, as well as their money from the VA. The, the thing is with the S, uh, what's called DNA program, drug abuse and alcoholism, the, the rep, some people had a bartender as a representative payee or their, you know, their dealer or, uh, and they didn't go to treatment. I left that out. That was also an expectation of getting that money. So on paper, that all made sense. But if you understand people with drug problems, it's pretty naive to think that's the way it would work. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time writing about Appalachia and poverty in, in that part of the world. And there was one town I visited where, um, the only place to cash a check actually was a bar, <laughs> and uh, that was not a not a good sign. I didn't think your work on um, addiction. I think would safe to be say that it's it's controversial in some ways. Um, certainly, been some interesting uh, back and forth conversations there, which puts you in an interesting uh, position. I think professionally, in that you're a, a not to flatter you, but a well regarded uh, practitioner in what you do. But you're also someone who's pretty critical of your profession in certain ways and some of its institutions. Psychiatry is a pretty small world. Um, is that is that uncomfortable to be in that in that position of being um, a very vocal, very public <clears throat> critic of of your industry? Because it's one thing to it's one thing to make suggestions at committee meetings. It's another thing to write in the Wall Street Journal. I have a lot of uh, what I call senior colleagues who are wo just wonderful and really wise people. I'm not saying there aren't wise younger you know, psychiatrists as well. Of course there are, but, but these are the ones I know because I trained with them and, um, and there, there's no problem. <laughs> and a lot of them are critical as well. Um, but you know, they're just not in, they're just not in the, uh, their culture of writing is for peer, is in peer reviewed, um, venues or in chapters somewhere. Um, and they also, a lot of them are in a way conflict avoid. They just don't want to, you know, just don't want to, but they agree. And I think, um, they're often kind of thankful that, you know, someone may be questioning things. Um, the, you may be specifically referring to one of my, um, big, uh, um, points of, uh, resistance with the est establishment, or at least the National Institute of Drug Abuse as an establishment, um, where since, gosh, since 1995, they have been, or, Officially, 1997, um, 
I've been designating addiction a brain disease. Is that what you're? Is that what you have in mind? Uh, some of it, yeah, yeah. And from the day I heard it, and I actually, it's so ironic that I was there um, <laughs> at a meeting uh, that sort of when it was floated to uh, a group of what are called stakeholders, that basically people who get grants from from NIDA. And the director at the time said, "You know, we're thinking of." It's basically a rhetorical move um, because there's no scientific evidence for such a claim. Um, we're thinking of calling addiction sort of a brain disease. <laughs> kind of what do you think? And there was – my recollection is it was a show of hands and it was um, – it was most people. And that director had worked for the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And that – in in that domain, it makes a lot of sense to say schizophrenia is a brain disease and bipolar illness. That makes sense. And I and, – and it also um, – I, th I think that their experience at, at NAMI was that it uh, garnered more sympathy and maybe even more receptivity to research funding and coverage of insurance insurance coverage for people with severe mental illnesses. So I think he thought it would transfer <laughs> to addiction, mm -hmm. but they're so different. And um, so I've basically been arguing against that for, my gosh, it's going on almost 30 years. And I... I frankly, I still do because I find it just so terribly misleading. It's um, so if I'm telling you, I don't even say it's not a brain disease because, of course, drugs affect the brain, and of course, neurocircuitry is is altered, and of course, there are genetic differences between people that that make those differences more com compelling in, in some folks physiologically than in others. All that's true, um, but um, so I don't say it's not a brain disease. I just say. That um, depending on who you are, that's probably not the most productive level of analysis in which to think about addiction. So, of course, you can think about it at the level of the brain. And in fact, the people who run NIDA have been neuroscientists for the last, geez, th about three decades now, and uh, or at least over two. And and they, have, one of them, has been very instrumental in pioneering PET scanning, and now. People don't use PET that much. I think they use functional fMRI. But th these are it's brilliant technology, and it's amazing that that you can visualize the activity, the brain activity of someone who took cocaine uh, and do before and after. I mean, that is amazing. But the question is, what does it tell you about the capacity of a brain, meaning a person, to, let's say, respond to incentives? Or to uh, stop using drugs when it no, they no longer serve a purpose, or when your life improves and you don't need them anymore. Um, so the reason that I um, so uh, um, object to uh, that reductionist view is that it's just it it just telescopes it down to one level, mm -hmm. <laughs> the neurobiological level, when there's so much more. There's the psychological level and the social level and the behavioral level and the cultural level. And um, and when you narrow it that way, the implication is that medications are the cure. Look, I work in a methadone clinic, so I am all for medications. But if that's all there was, all our patients would be cured, right? Because right. they wouldn't be withdrawing because that's what methadone does. It's a synthetic opioid that is a replacement effectively for heroin, fentanyl, oxycodone. And uh, if that's all their problem was, that's why I, that's why even that book Dope Sick bothered me a little bit because the implication was that um, you're continuing to use because you're withdrawing. And and to be fair, at, at a at a uh, sort of the five foot level, that is true. If a person feels that their heroin or whatever is wearing off and alcohol, they will drink more to suppress that feeling. But 
that is driven by a much deeper need. And that's what effectively is revealed in a methadone clinic because you've stripped, in a way, you've stripped the physiology away from the psychology. You've got the person. Why do you still want to use cocaine while you're in a methadone clinic? Why do you still use heroin from time to time while you're in a methadone clinic? Because there are these underlying problems. And, and so when you think of addiction as a brain problem, it just blinds you to all that. You don't even think about that. Plus the fact that incentives are very powerful uh, ways to get people to stop using. So uh, it, my uh, very smart psychologist, Gene Heyman, he um, has written about addiction. He's wrote, written a book called Addiction is a Choice. And what he means by that is certainly not, oh, I could take it or leave it. I mean, it's it's a choice, but it's a, it's often a hard one to make. But that... Um, that drugs are using drugs is a voluntary behavior, specifically that it's a behavior that can be modified by foreseeable consequences. And you know, when everyone, when people walk into this methadone clinic, I mean, 99.9 times out of 100, it's my wife is going to leave me. My kids are hate hate me. My boss is going to fire me. My probation officer is going to, to jail. Uh, violate me. Those are consequences. Um, now, those are those are negative consequences, so to speak, or those are sanctions. You always like to use incentives if you can, like what will be the reward? And the reward is implied. Obviously, if I change my behavior, my wife will like me and my kids will like but, um, But, you know, again, if, if you have a brain disease, which implies, and in fact, some of the rhetoric from the night of folks is that it um, drugs destroy free will. I mean, as if you are truly had a stroke or some kind of real neurobiological event, um, you know, but clearly that's not true because people can um, uh, modify their behavior when the consequences change. And and the most beautiful illustration of this, I, I used to be one of the few people who knew it, but um, but now it's, it's I, I mean, it may even be familiar to you, the Vietnam veteran story. Do you know that? Oh, good. Okay. Um, it's You could teach a whole class in addiction off of this. Um, so in 1971, when uh, President Nixon started getting uh, news from uh, Vietnam uh, officers and medical folks, I think, that um, there was a lot of use of heroin and um, opium, and this is really good heroin, uh, that uh, they were among, among the guys, the GIs, that um, he was panicked that they would bring their habits back to America. And, and, and heroin was a... That was one of the heroin uh, epidemics around then, the early mm -hmm. 70s. And so they devised um, a program with Jer Jerome Jaffe, um, the psychiatrist, who's one of my like-minded colleagues. Um, he's wonderful. He just had his 80th birthday. And so he devised this program with a spectacular name, Operation Golden Flow. And basically, it was you pee in a cup, and if there's no heroin in there, you can leave. You can go back to the States. If there is, um, you're not going. Now, we, we will offer you detox on site, or you can just stop now that we caught you, so to speak. But, you know, this is these are the rules. So the vast majority of folks, and there was estimated that around maybe a quarter, 15% to a quarter were really addicted, not just using it, also mm -hmm. heavy marijuana use, but they cared about the, the heroin. Um, and uh, so when... So when they tested most people, they actually managed to just stop. 
and uh, and there were good reasons. I should go back and say there are damn good reasons to use heroin in Vietnam. First off, you're bored to death when you're a soldier. You're bored. You're bored. You're bored, or you're terrified. Uh, and and a lot of people who who use drugs will use more of them when they are bored. Mm-hmm. So boredom is a real risk factor, and also terror, <laughs> and also probably uh, again a, a, a post traumatic or a or an, and a pre traumatic because they're very. Very anxious about what, what's going to happen, frankly, tomorrow or in the next five minutes. So uh, there was a lot of fear. There was also a lot of demoralization, especially towards the end of the war. A lot of reason to just want to escape. Plus, the stuff is there. It's totally normalized. I mean, every condition possible to uh, encourage almost drug use is, is, is right there. Uh, but when you come home, none of it's there. Um, it's not around you. You have to go to some scary part of town to get it. This remember, this is before cell phones, and you can meet someone in a right. you know McDonald's parking lot. Um, and uh, plus, you know, your wife and your kids. Uh, you know, it just it's it's just the most radical change of environment and mindset. The expectations are different. Um, the consequences would be different. Were you were you to con- try to continue to use? Um, you know, people. The vast majority of them just. Got back to work. It's not to say some of them didn't have, again, PTSD type symptoms, but but they didn't return to drug use. In fact, the minority over the three years, about twelve percent relapsed during that twelve year. Excuse me, during that three year period, and most of them had had uh, a heroin problem before they even went to Vietnam, hmm. which is which is such a typical story. Uh, it, it also explains the OxyContin story, which is uh, to say that the vast majority of people who div- who got their OxyContin from a doctor, and that was not the majority, but who got their medication from a doctor and then developed an addiction were people who had uh, alcohol or drug problems before. Yeah. That that's that is almost like an iron <laughs> rule of, um, of of addiction. So anyway, so so the uh, Vietnam story is amazing, uh, and um, uh, you know it just says a lot about how how context, environment, expectations, cues. I didn't mention that, but that's just like almost pav- a Pavlovian type of phenomenon. Well, it is a Pavlovian phenomenon where um, it, it is very prominent with stimulant drugs, but uh, where if you are around. Um, as they say, people, places, and things um, that you associate with with drug use, y- you uh, are pretty likely, if you're st- still fragile in your recovery, to experience a real rush of craving, and that makes you quite vulnerable. So, so a big part of therapy um, or counseling is relapse prevention work, where you learn how to, uh, for example, things that make common sense, but probably don't occur to you, don't drive by your dealers. Do not drive that way. Drive a different way. Um, Do not get your paycheck. Get it direct deposited. Um, Do not, and then some of them are really idiosyncratic, like a teacher who used um, powder cocaine and found that, you know, the chalk would kind of get him (laughs) so he had to use a a whiteboard or someone else who um, would uh, actually get... um, would actually find himself wanting drugs just looking down at his arms he injected where he had some some 
Well, some scabs. Yeah. And uh, so he had to wear, he always wore long sleeves. Now, admittedly, a lot of people wear long sleeves because they just don't want anyone to see them, those um, stigmata, as it were. But yeah. but he did it also because it didn't. he didn't want to uh, provoke you know, craving. And there are all kinds of idiosyncratic things. Don't listen to a certain song. Internal mood states can bring this kind of thing on. Um, so um, anyway, that that's all packed into that uh, Vietnam story. When we first started this conversation, I very cleverly built in the theme of uh, incentives, not knowing that you were going to give me Operation Golden Flow as a potential uh, yeah. segue into talking about kidneys. Um, but let's talk about kidneys. Oh, Okay. Um, well, that that's another one You've of my some. issues. Yes, I've had I have I've had a few. <laughs> um, Four, I guess. Well, two new ones, yeah, and um, they actually leave the old ones in place unless they were diseased in some way. So, but they then the, then things atrophy. So, yeah, I was um, uh, just minding my own business in um, around two thousand four, and. Um, I had a checkup, probably hadn't had one in 10 years and, you know, felt fine. But, um, one of the lab tests was really, um, deranged. And this is a lab test that would be on anybody's basic, you know, panel of tests. And it's called creatinine for what it's worth. And it's usually between one, if you're a big guy, maybe up to two, but usually around one. And, um, but mine was like five, which is really, out of whack. And, um, but is a rule of physiology that when, um, any of your blood tests are out of whack, like your liver function tests, or even, um, people with uh, Parkinson's disease that almost 90% of an organ has to be destroyed. If it happens incrementally, if it happens slowly over years, decades, sometimes you don't feel anything till the vast majority of that organ is gone. If, if my creatinine hit five overnight, I'd probably be unconscious, you know, yeah. but, uh, uh, so, so I felt okay, but, you know, it was kind of an, an, an inexorable, um, sort of deterioration. And, uh, so I knew I'd, you know, need a kidney and I knew from, you know, just from my days as in medical school and, you know, that dialysis is awful. Admittedly, it, I, I always am scolded by saying that because it is true that without it, you'd be dead. Um, I mean, if God forbid your liver um, were destroyed overnight and you didn't get a liver transplant, you would die. There are no bridging technologies. Uh, in, in hearts, there are some. I mean, Dr. Lynn, uh, Cheney, um, Dick Cheney had Dick Cheney, one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but even that doesn't, I don't think those last years and years, whereas dialysis can last a while. But um, but you want to avoid it at all costs because it, it's it you'll, your life will still be foreshortened relative to whether if relative to getting a kidney from a living person, which is the best. Um, dial uh, getting a kidney from a cadaver is second best, and staying on dialysis is I, I suppose third best, and then you'd be dead otherwise. I mean, those are your options yeah. basically. In a while, I hope in t ten to twenty years, there'll be you'll get a pig kidney, but we're not there yet. You know, as you know, transplanted pig kidney. Mm -hmm. um, that's really exciting work, and I think I think when you have grandkids, uh, your grandkids have kids or whatever, um, 
You'll say, you know, there was a day when we had to rely on other people to donate their organs. And It'll go, seem savage. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you'll be able to literally pick a kid, you know. Um, Get it on Amazon, probably. <laughs> well, you, they'll have to be, um, right, genetically altered to fit you. And then you won't be on the Im- immunosuppressant medications. Amazon will have your genetic have profile by that point. It so, probably would. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I needed to find a kidney, but I really wanted to buy one. Yeah. That's how I wanted it. I didn't it. want it from a friend because as the last thing I wanted was that sense of strangulating all, what I imagined to be just strangulating obligation. And um, and if it were a close friend, in a sense, it would just almost distort, kind of distort the relationship in some way. I, I, miss, I guess I could see people thinking, well, that's odd. Wouldn't it just make the relationship better? But I, I really think it, it would curtail some of the honest exchanges you could have. And you with can people. never make them pay for lunch again. Yeah. Oh, I never let Virginia pay for anything. <laughs> I wish I could, you know, buy her a Tesla. So you mentioned um, Virginia. This is Virginia. Oh, Postrel. sorry about that. Yes, yes jumped was, ahead. Uh, well-known writer and uh, former editor of Reason Magazine and many other things. Right. Um, but yes, um, spoiler alert: you cannot buy a kidney. It's been illegal ever since the 1984 National Organ Transplantation Act, which basically developed the the so-called list. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big um, national uh, registry of of people who need all, all, every kind of organ. Anything that's the wrong approach. <laughs> I do, I do. But we'll talk about um, that oh, I'm getting there. Okay. Um, so. Yes. Long story short, Virginia. Yeah, it was very hard to find someone, and um, but thank goodness a third, a friend, a mutual friend saw her at a party, and when she said, "How Sally," that person said, "Eh, not so great." And God bless her. I mean, really, I, you're just you know speechless with gratitude over something like that. Um, but yes, I have thought, I have long thought, I'm not the only person. Certainly, in fact, Richard Epstein was one of the first people that I read who was vocal about this. The law professor at the University of Chicago, uh, very market oriented man. Um, that yeah, we should be able to. Um, uh, I like to say, instead of being able to buy kidneys, we should be able to reward people who are going to save our life. Mm-hmm. Or save someone else's life. And um, and as I said, I'm not the first person to come up with this. Ever since the organ list, so to speak, went live in 1987, there's been a, sh- there's been a shortage. From day one, there's been a shortage. And so you can imagine over all these years, almost 40 years, that it's just, it's just accumulated. It's just gotten so that, you know, 20, a, a day from, one day from today, 12 people would have died because they didn't get a kidney. So, um, and these are avoidable deaths if we had um, enough, except that um, the society um, is wedded to this concept of altruism, that kidneys have to be given for free, altruistic. Well, I'd say Virginia still committed a very altruistic act. That was certainly quite a sacrifice on her part. But um, but they mean it in, you know, basically give it for nothing. The idea is money's dirty. Uh, yes, yes. And, um, you know, Al Gore, in fact, when he was at, on the head of the Science and Technology Committee, I think, or the, no, he was head, maybe he was head of that too, but he was, wasn't he the head of oversight um, in the House during one of his years? Well, in any case. Don't recall. Um, he even, uh, he, he was the one who spearheaded the, this NOTA legislation. And, um, as it became clear that there, there still might not be enough organs. And there was, this mainly was deceased at that time. It wasn't until the nineties that immunosuppressive technology really took off. Um, but 
you know, not enough people die in, in sort of an acceptable way uh, so that their organs are usable. And he kind of foresaw correctly that there would not be enough kidneys if we had to rely on, on cadavers. And even he suggested uh, during one of his hearing a speech during one of his hearings that, you know, we might be able to use incentives. And because it was, this was the, the age of the cadaver kidney, it was like a funeral benefit or some kind of contribution to an estate. So he even mentioned it then. But um, anyway, fast forward, uh, the law is still very much, it's a felony to give anything. The, the term is valuable consideration. Um, for a kidney, I couldn't give you 50000 I'd technically be committing a felony. And if you accepted it, you'd be committing a felony. No. It's only one person's prosecuted for this um, in the history of the world. but And even he was given a very light sentence. So I think there's a sense of like, you're still saving someone's life. But in any case- I made um, the same argument for um, parental rights in the, in the case of adoption, where we've got a really bad system for making those decisions. And um, people spend a lot of money on it. They pay you know lawyers and consultants and stuff, and everyone gets paid except for the, the woman who gives birth to the child. And that seems to me probably the, the not the best way to- um, handle those resources. And when I wrote that, people lost their minds. Hmm. Uh, people got really, really upset. Because you're you know, commodifying. Selling babies. Yeah, selling babies. Well, uh, yes. I am. You, I, I, I will give $1,000 to anyone who asks, uh, poses an objection that I haven't heard before. And there may, there may be out yeah. there, but I really want to know it because I want to have an argument for everything. Send your emails. And to, uh, yes, truly. Um, so- Right. So what's the problem with that? Well, what's the that? Let me explain what the, the plan would be. And I've been <clears throat> developing this with colleagues, um, uh, transplant surgeons, nephrologists uh, for, forever. And, e you know, even Virginia, um, it's so, frankly, so intuitive. I mean, she came up with it, you know, the week after we, you know, we had the transplant, which is- She had a lot of time to think. <laughs> Not much. She was, believe me, she was back working like a three, day, three okay. days. Well, she was sitting down. Now, if, obviously, if you're a day laborer, you do have to take like six weeks off, but mm. um, she's a mind laborer. And so the idea is uh, to, to avert the, the two things that make um, rational people nervous. One is that someone who potentially could be offered money, you know, would rush into this without really thinking it through. And then kind of regret it afterwards. The other thing is that the other uh, concern is that only rich people could participate in such a thing because I could pay you, but if someone needed a kidney but didn't have resources, you know, they're out of luck. So, um, so how do you get around those um, uh, glaring objections, which I think are valid? Um, one is that you don't offer cash so that it's not uh, attractive to desperately poor people, or you don't offer immediate cash. Um, the other is that you build in a waiting period so that um, you, you wouldn't um, uh, be able to get the reward. Now, what's the reward? Well, probably the easiest thing is a refundable tax credit that would be um, uh, paid out over 10 years uh, of one time I was thinking 50,000, other colleagues of mine now think it should be 100. I have no problem with that because the cost savings of getting people off dialysis is tremendous. 7% yeah. of Medicare funds are spent on dialysis, which goes to less than 1% of all dialysis, excuse me, all Medicare recipients. So we're talking billions of dollars. Um, so you would um, put, in a put in a delay. You would have the government be the payer. 
not the recipient. So that makes everybody eligible. And um, as I said, you wouldn't, um, yeah, you wouldn't offer cash, okay, you wouldn't offer a reward uh, right away. I think I covered what those those three big objectives are. And um, and then you're down to basically arguing with people over things like, uh, you know, arguments, as, as Michael J. Sandel would say, arguments from corruption versus arguments from consequence. Yeah. The, you just mentioned the argument from, from corruption. And that's, I, I respect Leon Cast tremendously, but we'd always, you know, argue about this and um, that it's somehow dehumanizing or it, it commodifies a body. Well, as you alluded to before, everyone's commodifying this. The people who rent the OR are commodifying it. The people who perform the surgery are commodifying it. And to me, in a highly legitimate way, of course they should be paid for their efforts, their talents. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of the surrogacy market? Oh, which we're changing topics. Well, as a um, as a as a point of comparison between these two things, I am, it seems like the nearest analog we have for something that's. I think if people are in, in practice, informed, you know, informed consent, um, they're of course physically healthy, um, because you can imagine. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of ways to corrupt this. You don't, you know, you let people do it when they're really not healthy enough, and that hurts both people, their potential recipient and the person, you know, who's who's giving the. There's a bad version of every market. Oh, of course. Yes. Mortgages. But there's no reason not to do it. I'm just saying yeah. it, things, uh, but we really have to be vigilant about stuff like that. But do you mean eggs and sperm? I have no problem with that. Uh, yeah, I was talking about, you know, surrogate uh, Oh, surrogacy. Yeah. Mothers. Oh, I think, I also think that's legitimate. I mean, these are humanitarian and financial motives that intertwine. Um, I mean, one example Virginia always gave that I found so compelling is, you know, when firemen rush into the building to save you, you don't really say, are you a volunteer fireman? You know, are you getting paid? Uh, if they save your life, that doesn't make the salvage any less amazing and their heroism any less incredible. Um, and so I see it the same the same way. Yeah. I also don't care what people spend their money on, which is another thing that, uh, oh, I mean, there's a whole list of objections. Some are ridiculous. Like, what if people buy a Ferrari? Well, what if they do? <laughs> That's absurd. But, and they- They're great cars. For, <laughs> but for what it's worth, with, with the tax credit, they probably wouldn't be enough for that. But, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, they're worried about, let's see, well, it's going to uh, attract mostly people with low income. Frankly, to me, that's an empirical matter. I, I think it'll attract mainly graduate students. I mean, people with earning potential, because there's a level of education you need not not to to feel more at ease with this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I mean, it's been well established that people with lower levels of education are just more, you know, more uncomfortable around um, surgical interventions, this this kind of thing. Um, and uh, but even if it were someone who was low income, if you know. If they're consent, if we they have informed consent, if the uh, reward is ample and not trivial, exploitation is when you don't give someone enough, yeah. uh, but they're not exploited. Uh, when they um, are, when gratitude is expressed, when their safety is ensured, on how is that not respectful? I mean, commodification is when, to me, I mean, that's supposed to be a conversation stopper, that word. You know, okay, yeah, you're right, commodification. Ooh, we don't want to do that. Well, what do you mean exactly by that? And and often when you listen, it's, it's like it was really talking about a lack of respect and treating the person like they are their kidney, treating the people like they're treated in a black market, which, of course, this is the solution to. Um, but then some of the other folks uh, – 
uh, uh, people I've uh, the loyal opposition will say, but you're you're you'll just create a black market if you do this. And I say, my gosh, you know, you don't need Milton Friedman to know it doesn't work that way. This is the solution to the black market. Yeah. This um, so. Anyway, there is an experiment in the world. Um, it's not even an experiment. It's not considered experimental anymore, but it's a natural experiment. Um, Iran actually pays people for their kidneys, but they do it in a way that I sort of as proof of concept, it's helpful because in some provinces um, where they seem to do it, I guess, better than others, they actually have a waiting list of people to donate as opposed to the waiting list of people to get the kidneys. Mm. But um, they do it in a way that uh, uh, it, the, the recipient um, does does often pay, have to pay in. And um, I don't know how good the follow-up, you know, the medical follow-up for the um, donor is. And it's not a system that we want to emulate, but- Free market libertarian say, paradise of Iran. Mm, it does show that, uh, um, you know, it, it uh, works. And why wouldn't it? Every time we reward people for doing something, we get more of it. Yeah. Um, and if I can say that's another Objections some people have is they say with certainty you'll get a crowding out phenomenon, which is the idea that um, you were going to go help at the shelter, but you found out that now they're paying people to help at the shelter, so you're not going to help at the shelter anymore um, because that kind of dilutes the meaning of your activity because you wanted to do it for free. Um, you know, to which I would answer, well, how altruistic were you in the first place? I would say that for every person like you, who said, well, now I'm not going to help. almost sounds so petulant. Well, now I'm not going to help, but 25 more people will. So on, so net, it'll be a real increase. Now, can I prove that? No, I can only say it probably happens in every other possible situation in the world where something that was once free is now being, you know, you can benefit from financially. But yeah, so let's do pilot trials. And there's actually a bill in Congress that would allow that, but it's just very slow progress. Yeah. We uh, get ready to wind down the conversation here a little bit. Um, one question I, I do I do like to ask people often is, um, are you entirely glad that you chose the career path you did in life? Uh, is there something else you might have done if you have uh, – do you ever think about um, if I weren't doing this, I would be doing something else and what it would it be? No. Um, no I, second thoughts? None. I actually feel – Incredibly lucky. I, 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 I never had a branch point where I said, should I do this or do that? In terms of things that really were kind of radically different, or even different enough, I suppose, that if I followed the trajectory, you know, all the way out would put me in a very different place than I am. No, I feel I really do feel lucky. Um, it was everything seemed like an, the inevitable next step. And, um, you know, I do miss and you alluded to this before, I guess, maybe about being a little estranged from my professions, so to speak. I mean, yesterday, um, I listened to a talk given by a really wonderful addiction researcher. He's at McLean at Harvard, and he gave the talk at Columbia, and I watched it on all the virtues of Zoom, and then I could watch it on Zoom. And um, and I miss him, and I, I miss I miss uh, that those kind of colleagues. Um, when I work at, a, at the methadone clinic, um, I work with great nurses and counselors, but um, and I learn from them and I like talking to them. But it's not like someone, you know, with your background and uh, where you can sort of ask, "Gee, what should I do?" When there's uh, you know elevated clearance of um, you know uh, 
cocaine and methadone, when people take cocaine, should we do this? Should we do that? You know, what kind of strategies we should, we should use and how should we, should we get blood levels and things like that? I mean, there, there, it's not that kind of, I don't have that kind of collegial experience. That it was I, good extemporaneous I, technical article. Yeah, the, yeah cur- was, the curbside uh, consult. Yeah. I really miss that a lot. And, uh, and I'm a little, I, I feel kind of out of the loop. Um, uh, that I know that if I were still in my department, yeah, I know the first, I know the studies that were all underway as opposed to seeing a lot of them when they finally come out. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that, that I, I'm, tr- I'm still trying to fix, <laughs> but, uh, Are you like a lawyer or a plumber where people ask you for free advice all the time? Um, not on a, not on air, but, <laughs> uh, not that often. And maybe I'd say once every three to six months. Three to six months. That's not too yeah, bad. And I don't charge them. Very good. Dr. Sedell, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That concludes our most recent episode of How the World Works. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Sally Sattel. We will put a link to the whole interview in the show notes, so you can go and watch that on YouTube if you would like to. And we will be back next month with another episode. Thank you all.